Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm your co-host, Cricket Lou. And I'm Matt Larson, your other co-host. And we're actually here again in person in Matt's basement. Well, I was going to call it my subterranean lair. Oh, better, better. <laughs> I like it. I like it, yes. At an undisclosed location in Bethesda, Maryland. That's right. All right. And uh, we're very happy to be back with you and uh, recording this time with actually substantially better equipment than the equipment I usually use anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid I now have beaten you in the microphone department. You have. You I have. have seen your microphone and raised you. I'm hoping to upgrade to better equipment for uh, for the next podcast or, or at least the Uber next podcast. All right. Well, we'd like to start out. We don't want to make a habit of this, but... Um... <laughs> like to start out with uh, just a little bit of, uh, what do we want to call it? What was the word you used a moment ago? Uh, apologia. Apologia. <laughs> is what I said. Uh, so last time in episode five, we were talking about lame delegations and we had a little bit of back and forth about that. And so I made it sound like the, um, you know, some of the CCTLDs, the country code top level domains did all this checking. And indeed that's, that's the true, the truth. We said .fr, we know for sure for France, .nl for the Netherlands, they do do a significant number of checks before they'll allow you to register a domain name. All right. But we should probably point out that I, I think it's sort of a different set of, of checks depending on the CCTLD. It's, it's not uniform that's across correct. CCTLDs. Right. So each CCTLD gets to decide what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And, and then we talked about how the, uh, the GTLDs, or the generic top-level domains, and specifically, I, you know, we were talking about .com and .net, um, you know, I made it sound as if we didn't do anything. And it, it is true that for .com and .net, um, there's not any uh, lame server delegation checking, um, nor is that done on an ongoing basis. But actually, it's not just .com and .net, but really all of the generic top-level domains that I'm aware of. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's not like CCTLDs have to do checking and generic top-level domains don't have to do checking. I think right. it's just... Or can't. Or can't, right. Mm -hmm. I think it's just worked out that way. And then I, I got to thinking about it and I thought, well, I, I really didn't want to leave people with the impression that .com and .net will, you know, you can register just anything. There, you know, there are a substantial number of sanity checks, uh, syntactic checks mm -hmm. that are done on a registration. Like, uh, for example, you and I were talking about this earlier um, when you specify a name server, if you want to say, okay, my name server is ns.foo.com, you can't give just any old IP address. Uh, uh, the registry maintains a table of address space that's been allocated uh, by IANA to the various regional internet registries. So in other words, it has to be a, uh, an IP address that's actually in play, as it were. It can't, mm -hmm. You can't just hijack unused address space. Right, or accidentally specify an RFC 1918 IP address. I believe that's also on the exclusion list. Yeah. So. So I just I didn't want to leave our listeners with the impression that that GTLDs were a free for all. That's right. It's the wild west out there. <laughs> no, far from it. All right. Well, I think now it's time for a question or two. So we kind of have a security themed show, I think, coming coming up. Yeah, accidentally. I, it looks like <laughs> <laughs> completely unplanned. Um, all right. So our first question is from uh, Anand Budev and. I guess we're we have now a increasing uh, tradition of having names that we can't be sure we're pronouncing right. <laughs> Maybe people should send us a, like NPR. You know, you have to and tell us how you pronounce your right, last right. name. Yeah, no. So I, I know Anand. Uh, Anand's a, a great guy who works for the uh, the RIPE NCC. Uh, RIPE being the regional internet registry in Europe, mm -hmm. and uh, he's the DNS services manager. And he wrote us a question about TSIG. 
So he uh, he's wondering, it's kind of in, in multiple parts here. Uh, he says, my question is about TSIG. I know what it is and how it can be used, but I'm more interested in hearing your opinions on when one should use it. TSIG provides authenticity as well as integrity so that a secondary can be sure that the zone transferred was not changed in route. However, if a zone is signed, then it's less important to be sure about the integrity of the zone since the data is signed. So does it make any sense to use TSIG then? So when he says signed, I assume he's talking he about DNSSEC. DNSSEC, yeah. 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 But maybe we should back up and just talk a little bit about what TSIG is as a protocol before we get into his specific question. Okay, yeah, that's a good idea. So TSIG is, is a security protocol that was sort of leavened on to the original DNS protocol and uses a, a particular type of resource record. And it's sort of, I believe it's described as like a meta record because it's not one that ever appears in a zone data file. Right, it's it's ephemeral as it were. It only mm -hmm. appears on the wire. It's a TSIG, actual TSIG type, mm -hmm. and it uh, appears in the additional section. Right, and the, the TSIG type is uh, generated by one participant in a, a, a DNS transaction, uh, sending a DNS message. And uh, it's basically a, a one-way hash of the contents of the DNS message. And uh, and then uh, actually a keyed one-way hash, I guess I should I should say. Yeah, let me, can I describe how that works? Because yeah. it's, really, it's really cool. I remember yeah, when I first ahead. found this out, it's a technique called HMAC. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember what HMAC stands for, but TSIG needs a secure hash algorithm like MD5 or SHA-1 or, you know, a cryptographically strong hash algorithm. And so there's a shared secret between the two parties. Mm -hmm. So that's just a fancy way of saying like, you know, a password, something that both ends know. So it provides uh, uh, authentication as well as integrity, which is what, what Anand said. Right. Authentication, because if you are sure that the only person you shared the password with is the person you're communicating with, then... Correct. So, so you have something like a DNS message, as you said, and so you take the DNS message and you basically concatenate the secret onto the end of it, and then you run that through the cryptographic hash, right? And then you send the message and this hash output, and so only someone who possesses the secret can take the message they received, append their copy of the secret, run it through the same hash algorithm, and if that matches the, the signature, then you know that it's a legitimate legitimately signed message. Right. So what this proves is that, that the message really did, did come from the other party, assuming that the password hasn't been divulged to anyone else. And it also proves that the message wasn't tampered with, wasn't right. modified in transit. Um, because if it were, then it would hash to some other value and it wouldn't match once it was received on the other end. Right. And I should point out, these are actually two of the same services that DNSSEC provides when we were talking about that in, in right. earlier episodes, D uh, data origin authentication and data integrity. Right. And it's important to note that, that one thing that TSIG does not provide is uh, data privacy. It doesn't in any way encrypt the payload of the DNS message. Um, if, you were, if you were snooping on the wire, you would still see the contents of the DNS message go by. You would see a query, for example, or a dynamic update, and you'd be able to read the contents of that. Oh, and so what you just mentioned was another thing that I wanted to make sure we said about TSIG is that it works between any two parties sending DNS messages, whatever 
particular kind of transaction that would be. Mm-hmm. So it can work on queries and responses, sort of the, the main thing we think of for DNS. Uh, it can work on a zone transfer because a zone transfer is a single query that initiates it and then a succession of DNS messages over and over and over again right. that make up the zone transfer. So each of those can have a TSIG on them. Uh, it can also work with dynamic update because dynamic update actually reuses the DNS message format, the, the header, question, answer, additional authority, authority, additional, sorry, wrong order. And uh, you know, so there are all these different DNS protocol interactions that can use TSIG. So it's it's uh, slick in that regard that it has these multiple applications. Right. And that actually leads us back to something that we didn't say up front, which is that TSIG is short for transaction signature. <laughs> oh, I guess we should have said <laughs> right. that. Yes. So it does apply to all DNS transactions, really. Yes. yes. Right. Whether they're queries, updates, or zone transfers. Now, uh, so you know a little something about GSS TSIG, which people have maybe heard about. And maybe... A, a very little something. Oh. <laughs> I will test your knowledge on national podcast of GSST SIG. Right. So so GSST SIG, if you've heard of GSST SIG, you probably associate it with Microsoft because it's a variant, a dialect basically, of uh, the TSIG protocol that is used by Microsoft specifically. It's it's mostly used by Windows machines running, say, Windows 2000 or later to secure dynamic updates. And what's special about GSST SIG is that rather than having to uh, pre-provision, if you will, that password on either side of the transaction, for example, have the updater uh, pre-configured with the same password that you're using on the name server. So you're in a dynamic update context. For right, example, right. There. Yeah. This, is, this is specifically used, uh, used by, by Microsoft uh, Windows machines doing dynamic updates. You actually can negotiate that key using... Um, a Kerberos server, basically. Well, the Kerberos server component of, uh, of an Active Directory domain controller in most cases. So that's what's sort of magical about it. Um, domain controllers have this Kerberos uh, key just distribution center functionality built into them. And um, as, as part of being a, an Active Directory domain controller, they already share keys with um, all of the computers that are members of the Active Directory domain. So you really sort of save a lot of that setup, a lot of that key distribution hassle by leveraging uh, the, that Kerberos functionality to to set up the or negotiate the uh, the, the key that you're going to use to update the DNS server. Yeah, because that's one of the real issues with TSIG is this key distribution problem. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that you have a mechanism to get the shared secret or the password or the key, whatever you want to call it. Uh, to each end of the conversation. Exactly. And, and, you know, there are some people who have asked, well, why don't we just use TSIG for everything? Can't we just use TSIG rather than DNSSEC to secure all DNS transactions out there on the internet? And and I mean, there are a few reasons that you can't, but, but one of the big ones is that there's an enormous key distribution problem. So uh, in order to authenticate any piece of data that your, for example, authoritative name server might receive, any query that it might receive from any name server on the internet, you'd need a unique shared key with every name server on the internet. Right. So it it, it only works in places where you have control of both ends. You use the dynamic update example in the context of uh, Windows Active Directory where GSST SIG comes in. And so that sort of magically or magically as far as this podcast episode is concerned, <laughs> right. uh, magically solves the key distribution uh, problem. Uh, another excellent use for it that Anand mentions is zone transfers. Mm-hmm. 
So they're provided that you can have control of both ends and, and you probably do because you, you're probably running the primary or the secondaries or you have to have a relationship with them. Let's say, you know, you're running the primary, but somebody else is running a secondary. Maybe for you. your ISP, yeah. for example. Well, like for, well, or you and I, for example, yeah. we each, we each secondary the other zones. And so we've shared the secret on our servers and um, they authenticate the zone transfers between them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's important because you want to make sure that, uh, for example, the source of the zone transfer is really the authoritative name server that you think it is, that it's not somebody masquerading as the master server for uh, nxdomain.com. And this is used, uh, TSIG is used in this manner in some high-profile places. I, I should point out it's actually used uh, on the root zone itself. So the, the, the root zone has uh, what's called a stealth master, hidden master servers. So those are servers that are authoritative for the zone but don't appear. You know, it's not a.rootservers.net or b.rootservers.net all the way up to, you know, it's not one of the ones in the NS record set for the root. And uh, all of the root servers use TSIG and a shared secret to download the root zone because if there were any zone that you wanted to be absolutely sure was protected, uh, that you knew A, where it was coming from, data origin authentication, mm-hmm. and B, that it hadn't been tampered with in root, data integrity, you know, that would be the root zone. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And it is occasionally used, plain vanilla TSIG is occasionally used to secure dynamic updates too. Although I think that's less common than GSS TSIG nowadays, given, of course, how common Active Directory is and and how overwhelming <laughs> the number of, uh, of Windows desktops and laptops there uh, are. There's a lot of GSS TSIG out there, but, but you do also have some uh, dynamic updaters that are capable of sending just plain vanilla TSIG, like RFC 2845 TSIG signed dynamic updates. Right. Well, I think I don't keep real close track of the ISC, the, the Internet Systems Consortium. The same people who bring us Bind also bring us the uh, DHCP server. But I'm fairly certain whatever the latest release is does, just as you describe, it does plain vanilla TSIG for dynamic updates. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The latest versions certainly support TSIG signed dynamic updates. All right. Well, we, we haven't really gotten, it's occurring to me, to Anand's rather specific question, which is... Um, let me repeat it. However, if a zone is signed, so I, you know, he means with DNSSEC, then it's less important to be sure about the integrity of the zone since the data is signed. Mm-hmm. So does it make any sense to use TSIG then? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, one thing that I learned relatively recently is that a secondary name server for a zone uh, that has been signed using DNSSEC actually doesn't validate that data. It doesn't check it because, of course, in most cases, it doesn't even have access to the private key for the zone. Well, even the even the primary won't any anymore. Right. Uh, it, it did. Earlier versions of Bind did at one point, and I think ISC backed away from that, mm-hmm. um, I think, to separate the serving functionality from the signing functionality, which has always been a, a design goal from DNSSEC from the very beginning, the idea that you could you know take your zone into a super secure room and sign it and then and then <laughs> yeah. serve it completely separate from that that secure signing facility right so does that do you think that argues for using tsig as well as dnssec because for example um somebody might be able to to spoof the source of the zone transfer and feed one of your secondaries uh for example an unsigned copy of your zone or a copy that had been signed with a different private key yeah, well, I, so I can think I can think of a couple of reasons you'd still want to use TSEG. Um, well, okay, I can think of one reason, but to but to go to what you just said, I guess if they did substitute 
an unsigned version, which they could do. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. If you know, a really clever man in the middle could do that. Uh, but then downstream, anyone who was validating your zone, who was f- building a DNSSEC chain of trust, uh, if they had reason to believe your zone was secure, and one of your secondaries was giving out an unsecure, you know, unsigned answers, then that would fail validation. And so at, at best, that's really a denial of service attack. It's sort of a really uh, Rube Goldberg denial of service <laughs> attack, you know, going to a lot of a lot of effort. But, the, you know, actually, the the configuration option in the, in the latest versions of Bind uh, that, that tells the name server only accept signed DNSSEC signed answers from this particular uh, domain, I don't believe that's on by default. So even if you were to configure a trust anchor for, for example, nxdomain.com, um, if if the validation failed, I, I don't. The validation failed because there were no signatures. I, I'm not sure that you would not return that to a resolver that asked. So now you're not talking about one of the authoritative servers for nxdomain.com. Are you talking about just some random recursive name server out there that's doing validation of nxdomain.com? Yeah, yeah. One that's one that's doing validation of nxdomain.com that has a trust anchor configured for nxdomain.com. Well, let's imagine that, that com is, is still not unsigned, so we don't have any proof from the parent zone of, of the uh, child zone being signed. But I, I think, and I'm not totally sure of this because I haven't, I haven't ever, actually ever played around with this particular substatement within namedy.conf, but I think that if it got back an unsigned response, it would still pass that back. It would still say, oh, that's okay. Because there is this option now, and I think it's, you know, domain is secure or something like that. Um, domain dash is dash secure or um, something like that. That you have to set to say, if it's not signed, don't return it. Okay, well, you're you're ahead of me on the bleeding edge of bind, uh, bind option statements for that. And presumably... Well, just one more thing. Presumably, if they just added that, then the behavior of the name server before that is if it's not signed to return it. Well, I do know that if you have, so this would be a, this would be a new feature. So here we are speculating about something that <laughs> this this might lead to another episode of uh, <laughs> of listeners screaming at the uh, at the the radio, particularly uh, listeners at, at ISC, yeah. you know, bind developers. But I, I do know that if you have reason to believe that a zone is signed, like either you have a trust anchor for that very zone, mm-hmm. or you've built a chain of trust that leads you to believe that a zone should be signed, and yet you see unsigned data coming back from it. That's that's an error condition because a man in the middle could be doing the attack that I mentioned, well, that, that you mentioned, we both mentioned a moment ago, namely stripping out signatures. Right. So right. that that should be a validation failure. So are you saying that mine now has an option to fail more softly, you know, rather than a hard failure, a soft failure? Actually, I'm saying the opposite. Oh. That the option within bind to return a hard failure, I believe, was just added. So that makes me think that you know, maybe that sort of an attack would work. Certainly, you know, for example, with the, um, you know, with, with the recent signing of the, the .gov top level, top level zone, um, you know, they're advising people because it's just experimentally signed not to, you know, not to require signatures for the time being. So there's got to be a way to do that, right? Well, you just would configure a trust anchor. But what if you wanted to I guess it doesn't make sense to, to validate some responses, but not all responses. Yeah, I don't think you can. So I, I, I sense another, what did you call it again? Apologia? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sense another one might be coming in episode seven. Yeah, we'll have but to... it'll be mine this time. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be my mea culpa. <laughs> well, 
But one thing that does occur to me that would be a reason to sign, uh, use TSIG rather, uh, a reason to use TSIG to protect your zone transfer, even if the zone is signed, is that not everything in a signed zone is necessarily signed. In other words, not every resource record set. Oh, true. Uh, you know, so delegation information mm -hmm. uh, is not signed and glue records. So uh, A records or quad A's below a delegation point, that information isn't signed. Right, right. So you'd want to protect that. What about NSEC 3? Um, if you have NSEC 3, which uh, you can explain to our listeners. Or, or not. <laughs> well, you better than I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, does that make any difference? Uh, no, it doesn't with regard to delegations not being mm -hmm. signed. Basically, NSEC 3 only changes the contents of the uh, NSEC chain. Mm -hmm. But the NSEC chain is still there, still providing authenticated denial. But it, in an NSEC 3 signed zone, you still have unsigned delegation NS records and unsigned glue. But there's the, maybe there's the potential that there's more unsigned stuff that could be tampered with if you weren't using TSIG. Because there are NS records as well as the uh, the, the glue address records and right, but in, in any case though those are those NS records are unsigned. Okay. Now if it's a secure delegation, then there's a DS record. Right. And then that's signed. Right. But even in that case, the NS records for the secure delegation are not signed. So that's that's the only reason I can think of to use TSIG, in addition to DNSSEC, other than and I guess the other reason would be it's just kind of good. Good hygiene, mm -hmm. good aesthetics, mm -hmm. belt and suspenders. You know why not? Why not? You know if you if you have the infrastructure under your control, it's not that onerous. I mean, you and I set up TSIG how many years ago? <laughs> oh, ages, ages. And and I suppose that there's the potential that it would just catch, uh, you know, a, a bit flip. You know, an accident, completely accidental change of the zone data that might go unnoticed otherwise if you were just doing a plain old um, AXFR over TCP zone transfer. Right. And, and something that might possibly change the zone in some uh, some devastating way that you wouldn't notice otherwise. But TSIG would catch that because, of course, it, it, it amounts to uh, doing a, a checksum over over all of that data. I think once again, we've talked enough that if we haven't <laughs> answered it, we've certainly gotten tired of talking about That's it. That's right. So. That's right. We've beaten the question into submission. Yeah. All right. Well, we have another question that came in from uh, Mark Perella, who is one of uh, Infoblox's stellar system engineers. Uh, in the Southeast. And Mark uh, writes, what are the advantages and disadvantages from both a technical and administrative perspective of a split versus non-split namespace architecture? Uh, in what types of environments would I prefer one over the other? So this could be an entire podcast episode right there. We'll need to, we'll need to watch the clock and restrain ourselves. Yeah, we will. Now, I guess we should maybe begin by describing what a split namespace uh, versus a non-split namespace is. Uh, a split namespace is, is typically one in which the namespace, the zone data that you present to the internet is different from the namespace that you present to your internal network. Um, and that's quite common within enterprise environments. Most uh, large companies use split namespaces today. I would say it's the exception rather than the rule when you find a an enterprise that doesn't doesn't use it right that, that displays the same data to the internet as, as they do internally right yeah. and typically the the external version is much smaller because it only needs right. you know www.company.com and, and mx records for company.com and that is sometimes not not much more than that whereas mm -hmm. company.com internally could have 
a Windows Active Directory domain. It could have uh, research people having their own by name servers doing whatever. You could have lots of subdomains. Right. Or, or even just, you know, generally desktop computers, laptop computers that are inside the company's firewall and that aren't accessible from the outside world. There's no reason really to have those in the external version of, of your zone, that the one that's presented to the Internet. Right. So I would think the main reason not to do this uh, would be unnecessary, preventing rather, unnecessary disclosure of information. I mean, why give out or even allow for the potential leakage of that stuff? Now, mm -hmm. of course, the, the best practice would be in all cases, you should shut down zone transfers. You know, so you shouldn't let somebody gratuitously list the contents of your zone. Mm -hmm. But even so, uh, you know, I, I guess why expose that information even on a query by query basis to someone on the Internet? Why not just keep it internal? Right. There's certainly an argument to be made for that. I believe also that there's a, a requirement in RFC 1918 that if you use RFC 1918 address space, you don't advertise A records, for example, um, that, that point to that RFC 1918 address space out on the Internet. Right. So you're talking about the private use address space. Everybody's mm -hmm. probably got, you know, 192.168.1.1 as their uh, Internet or that they're a home gateway address. I, you know, I think I said that last episode or the episode before. Well, you're right that RFC 1918, I think, says that, but that's widely, <laughs> <laughs> widely ignored. Widely flouted, yeah. <laughs> but you do raise an interesting point, which is that, you know, even if I tell you that my router is 192.168.1.1 and you can resolve it via DNS, that's not a routable address. Right. So, you know, you yes, you're exposing internal IP addresses, but it doesn't do anybody any good because they can't get to them. Right. And I think that I think that the that advisory within RFC 1918 is is less about security and more about making sure that we don't have, you know, unnecessary traffic being spit out onto the internet just to to end up in an IANA black hole somewhere. I think that there is basically a sink somewhere. Uh, on the internet, or maybe there are several of them where stuff that's addressed to those, um, you know, one of those networks actually ends up going if it leaks out of your network. Yeah, I don't know about from a routing perspective, but I know that from a reverse mapping perspective. Yes. Uh, the, which is, uh, maybe that's what you meant. The, uh, you know, the reverse mapping, the in at or dead ARPA delegations for all of the RFC 1918 space are delegated to these black hole servers. And that's right. that's known as the AS112, as an autonomous system 112 project. And yep. I think you can go to as112.net and 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 there's and these are all they're anycast actually so they're all they're all mm -hmm. over. So you hopefully have a sync somewhere near you. Yes. And do we have do we have an argument to be made the other way around to actually have? Uh, we should probably say that we worked for one of uh, I think the the very few organizations that I know of that actually uses or at least used the same namespace externally as internally. That's true. I should have thought about that at the very beginning. Yeah, HP.com, back when Cricket and I both worked there, um, it was wide open. Uh, there was one namespace everywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And below HP.com, too, was the entire HP.com domain. One of the, the requirements when you were setting up a, a subzone of HP.com was that at least one of your name servers be accessible from the Internet so the folk could see it. That's right. I had kind of forgotten about that. So all of HP.com was ultimately visible, even though only a tiny, tiny fraction of the hosts that you would resolve would be mm -hmm. IP addresses that you could actually connect to. Right. But one of the things I think that they argued after we both left and we we uh, we were gone by what, 1995? Five. Five? No, seven. 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 Yeah. <laughs> 1997. So by 1997, we were gone. 
Um, and of course, at that point, you've made the architectural decision to have a single namespace or a split namespace, and it's probably too late to go back without a whole heck of a lot of work uh, if, you're, if you're a large company, if you're a, an organization the size of HP. Well, and you inherited it to begin with. I right? did. I did. Yeah. It was already set, it, it was set up when I took over running HP.com. But I think one thing I have heard folks at HP say is that HP has so many connections to other companies. Um, and, and there are so many contractors and consultants working for HP who need, you know, one-off access to this internal host or that internal host that it's actually a lot easier for them to make all of the namespace accessible to the internet and, you know, to rely on, on devices like firewalls to handle the necessary access control. Because of course, making something visible via DNS doesn't make it accessible to the outside world. That's a, that's a completely different layer. Right. And, and it is, again, worth pointing out that if you lock down zone transfers, it's not like you're publishing it in a newspaper or something. It's only available for people who know the domain name that they can actually query. You know, they mm -hmm. have to know that foo.bar.france.hp.com actually is a host name. And only then can they do a query for it. And only then can they get an IP address, which they probably can't connect to anyway because exactly. of firewalls. Exactly. So, you know, those are some reasons, I think, that that. HP justifies having a, a single namespace today. That and, of course, momentum. You know, they've, they've got a, a single namespace, so uh, the effort involved in splitting it would just be Herculean. But um, it does make it a lot easier to provide that that kind of third-party connectivity to business partners, to uh, consultants, and 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 um, to whomever else might need access to your network. And certainly, that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a, an increasing trend within within business today. To, to have you know more and more of your operations outsourced, your support may be outsourced, manufacturing may, may be outsourced. You may rely a lot on on contractors and consultants for uh, for important business services. So uh, there there could be a, an argument made for that too. Yeah, I don't think it's as strong as the argument the other way though. I think I would err on the side of advising somebody to start with a really small external namespace and go ahead and mm -hmm. split their namespace. And right. Right. One, one of the down, downsides of having a split namespace, of course, is that you actually have to maintain both the internal and the external versions of the namespace. Although that being said, the internal probably changes much more frequently than the external. Mm -hmm. And there are tools that are optimized to let you maintain the internal one, like, I don't know, DNS appliances. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as a matter <laughs> of fact. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's probably at least worth saying that it, there is some additional overhead in maintaining that, that, that external uh, view of the namespace, if you will. I mean, we have, we have on Infoblox Appliances, we do have some tools to, to make that a little bit easier to do, like records that can be shared between internal and external views and just managed in one place. Um, but it, it, it definitely is a certain amount of overhead. And, of course, there are organizations that have not just the internal and external, but maybe they have sort of a business partner slash extra net view as well. So then things start to get very complicated. Well, and just to prove that everything in this podcast can seemingly be connected back to DNSSEC, um, <laughs> you know, that raises yet another uh, whole can of worms. No, you don't raise a can of worms. You open, open a, can a can of can worms. worms. It yes. opens another can of worms, which is, you know, if suddenly you've got multiple versions of the same zone floating around, how do you know you're building a chain of trust mm -hmm. to the right zone? How do you know you're using the right key to the right zone? Things are going to get complicated, I think, when we start to see more DNSSEC deployment, which I think is inevitable. It's just a question of how fast it happens. Yeah, I think we're going to see split namespace issues where configurations that otherwise worked fine 
don't work because somebody doesn't realize the DNSSEC implications of what they've done. And then people are using the wrong key to validate the wrong namespace. Yeah, yeah. I think that that will probably be, be something that trips a lot of people up, that they end up, for example, descending into an internal namespace from outside thinking that it should be signed because, you know, the comm zone says that uh, nxdomain.com should be signed, but the internal version of it isn't signed. So you don't believe any answers given out by the internal name servers. Exactly. One more way that DNSSEC is going to make our lives interesting. Indeed. Indeed. If only we were still consulting and we could... <laughs> be All a lot these... of money to be made. I think so. Well, I said that uh, I said that 10 years ago, and I think I was 10 years, 10 years too early. But... Yeah, maybe more than 10. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well... What do you think? I, I think that we're, we're you know, just past the uh, ideal length of uh, an internet podcast, aren't we? I think we are. So, well, please, uh, please keep your questions coming. Uh, both of these questions that we answered tonight, we received uh, relatively recently, I think maybe even since uh, we recorded episode five. So, you I know, so. We, do, uh, we do read the email, we do answer the questions, and uh, we'll end with our usual reminder of the address. It's uh, Mr. DNS, MRDNS at ask-mrdns.com. So thanks for listening, and uh, talk to you the next time. Bye-bye.